0: strong voices. It's not just about one state, it's not just about one community, it's about all of our communities. The issues that face Indigenous peoples around the world sit at the heart of the questions that we're asking about the future of our political order.
1: I am here and now, and I speak my language, I practice my cultural essence of me.
0: What we do need is a more critical race consciousness in this country, a preparedness to talk about race, to talk about the way in which racialised logic are inscribed upon our bodies, and to critically examine them in order to change
2: it. The government's changed, but we've got to be still here. We're always going to be still here. We've been here for 65,000 years, and I don't think we're going to go anywhere.
0: What the system still struggles with is this collaboration with First Nations people. A strong voice is an Aboriginal voice.
3: Hello, good morning and welcome to another episode of Strong Voices. We're coming to you from the Calm Radio Studios here on our new country in Central Australia. Uh, coming to you here in Alice Springs on 100.5 8 Ken FM. Also, of course, broadcasting right across Australia on uh, vast channel 911. And of course, as well, coming to you uh, online via the Calm website at karma.com.au. Uh, Today is the start of the week. It's the twenty eighth of October, two thousand and nineteen. It's uh, great to have your company this Monday. I'm your host, Kyle Dowling, and you'll have my company up until uh, twelve o'clock today here on the show. We're coming up on strong voices. We're going to be hearing from the Northern Territory Labor Minister, Selina Ubo, who uh, stopped into the Karma Studios late last week. She's going to be discussing a range of topics on the program today. Also, uh, celebrations were held at the weekend with the closure of the Uluru Climb. Today, we're going to bring you a wire report hearing from the CEO of the National Native Title Council, who's going to be discussing that close of the Climb, in particular, the uh, influx of visitors that we saw in the months leading up to the Climb. Also, to help improve the lives of First Nations kids, more than 80 organisations and commissioners are calling for the establishment of a National Commissioner for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Children... The CEO of Snake, the Secretary of National Aboriginal Islander Childcare will be joining us to discuss why we need a dedicated national commissioner for Indigenous Indigenous kids as well. We're of course as well going to be hearing the latest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news with that segment coming up on the show as well. Before all of that though we are going to go to a song and then we'll be right back with our first story. Oh. Hey mob, this is Patrick Johnson, and you're listening to Strong Voices. Be deadly and stay deadly. Yes, you're listening to Strong Voices this Monday, the 28th of October. Great to have your company today. We're going to head into our first story of the show. Uh, Selina Yubo was born and bred in the Northern Territory. Her mum is her mother is a Nungumbuyu lady from uh, Numbulwar, Groot Island in southeast Arnhem Land. Her father is a second-generation Australian who was born in Sydney and is of Estonian, Irish, and South African descent. Selina was elected into the Northern Territory Legislative Assembly in 2016 in the electoral division of Arnhem, and promoted to the cabinet of the Northern Territory as Minister for Education and uh, Minister for Training in 2018. Selena Yubo,
4: welcome back to Karma.
0: Thank you very much, Paul. Thanks for having me. Well, Selina, a
4: global event, the weekend, the closure of the climb at Uluru, a significant moment for the First Nations peoples in this country and perhaps one of the first times that they've made a decision that the government has actually allowed them to carry it through.
0: It's a very exciting time for the traditional owners and I think of the year it was handed back, 1985, that was the year I was born. So 34 years and finally having the full recognition of the traditional owner wishes of people not climbing that beautiful sacred place um, and I'm very much looking forward to being out there on Sunday to witness that and to have that share in some of the closure that people have been fighting for for many decades.
4: There are critics of course, many across the country who uh, say it will be the death of tourism for Uluru. I'm sure that there's many also in the industry who think differently.
0: I agree Paul I think that there is just so much out there, there's so much natural beauty there's so many different activities and just the culture and the stories alone are enough to captivate people. I've heard different stories from friends from families, from visitors saying um, that when they went to the rock and they might have intended to originally climb it and then they heard the different stories. The tour guides out there, most of them are exceptional um, and then they made a decision not to climb and I think the rate of climbers has decreased over the many years because people are actually listening to the wishes of the traditional owners and I think that's a good thing. Now it's officially being recognised as closing that climb um, but I think people have been able to go to that beautiful place, make that decision to respect the wishes and they'll continue to do so over many, many years. Uh,
4: National Parks in the Territory still some concern around uh, support by the federal government but even within the Northern Territory the uh, management and cash flow within the parks, making sure that the the mob are actually getting a payoff from that.
0: It's really important that we have those strong relationships with the Commonwealth Government who support those joint national parks. Obviously, uh, Uluru, Katajula is a big one, but we also have Kakadu National Park, which is a joint park, and that's in my electorate of Arnhem. And sometimes it's about reminding the feds that they do have responsibilities in supporting those joint uh, partnerships. Um, and particularly in the uh, decisions that are being driven by our traditional owners from those beautiful parklands and from those countries and making sure that we have the respect to support Local decision making, support tourism, support sustainability. I think environment is a really big topic uh, for many people, but particularly here in the Northern Territory because we have such pristine landscapes. We want to protect that and ensure that we have that for future generations. So sometimes it's making sure that we have our seat at the table, particularly uh, with our federal counterparts, and making sure that they know they have a responsibility to support what's happening here in the Territory with our national parks. Treaty
4: what's happening? Mick Dodson, his duty was to put together a process. We have a territory election coming up next year. What bipartisan support is there for that?
0: Well, I've got Aboriginal affairs, but the Chief Minister, Michael Gunner, actually holds the portfolio of treaty um, and he'll be down here for a couple of days over the next week in Central Australia. Um, but I've worked very closely with the Chief Minister in this area and I acknowledge Chancy Pake, the member for Namajira. He and I did a lot of work as Assistant Minister for Aboriginal Affairs last year in that working with our for land councils to appoint the Treaty Commissioner and the Treaty Commission, which we have now. We also have a Deputy Treaty Commissioner now in Ursula Raymond, so an Aboriginal man and an Aboriginal woman taking up the Commissioner roles, which is very exciting for the Northern Territory Commissioner Dodson is doing a lot of the research and framework uh, background. Currently, he'll start to look at he and um, Commissioner Raymond will start to look at their consultation and the travel. I think sort of early in next year, and and ultimately their role is to report on a framework uh, about the best way to negotiate for treaty or treaties in the Northern Territory. Uh, so, as you know, first of its kind in the Northern Territory, there's a two year appointment in that position and the work that. will be um, ongoing. So we'll start to see more of the community consultations happen um, in 2020.
4: Just at the uh, cabinet level, we saw the removal of several of the First Nations uh, members from their uh, cabinet portfolios and back to the backbench. The little power lobby that had come together, is that still working cohesively together for the mob?
0: Well, I think uh, the important thing to recognise, and, and many of your listeners obviously will uh, will say absolutely this is true, is that Aboriginal people, we're not a homogenous group. Um, we often get uh, homogenised and lumped in as mm. being the same and having to think or act the same. Um, we have six members of the Northern Territory Legislative Assembly, our Parliament of the Northern Territory, uh, who are very strong individuals and who represent their electorates very proudly as Territorians and particularly as Aboriginal Territorians. Uh, We have five members of the Labor Party who are Aboriginal Parliamentarians and we have four who are in the caucus room. Um, So boiling it down in that way, one in the Cabinet, which is myself. So going down to the numbers, um, I think our job as Parliamentarians is to make sure we're representing our constituents voicing the concerns of everyone who um, who we represent in Parliament. And particularly, I guess, we probably have that extra, um, that feeling of that extra obligation that we have that that voice of Aboriginal Territorians and our families and our friends um, who have a high expectation of the work that we do in Parliament and making sure that we uh, lead ourselves in a manner that is uh, not only complementary for the Territory but also pushing forward to make sure that we have Aboriginal Territorians recognised as a strong voice across the Northern Territory. We
4: have a Territory election coming up next year and uh, we recently spoke to the Opposition Leader about uh, Aboriginal candidates for the Liberal Party and uh, other parties basically uh, for the uh, Gunner Labor government to be returned hanging on to the First Nations members currently in there, but also checking out new potential parliamentarians. Uh, The world and the Territory is is changing rapidly. Uh, There are different issues, Uh, many are long-standing issues, but uh, it's gone to a different level now. Obviously, fracking is one of those, uh, mining in the Territory, sustainability, economic sustainability. Where are the mobs sitting and what involvement they have in those discussions?
0: Well, I think first and foremost, Paul, when we have um, the opportunity to look at selection of candidates. First and foremost, when we're talking about the Territory Labor Party, we always want to make sure that our candidates and those who are selected as candidates to run an election are the best people for the job. Um, I think it In my role as uh, a member of the party and an Aboriginal member of the party, I would love to encourage more Aboriginal um, people to be looking at a a place in politics and a pathway and a profession in politics so we have those strong voices um, and also recognising that when we are in, we're representing the whole of our electorate. We represent all of our constituents, regardless of colour, creed, language, culture, background or politics. We're representing everyone in our electorate. Um, and it, beco- and it, it comes with um, great honour and pride. Of course, some challenges as well in acknowledging that. Um, but for me, uh, as an Aboriginal member of the Labor Party, I'll be encouraging more people to look at that, whether it's in the short term or the long term, putting their hand up to be um, selected as Labor candidates for the next Territory election or future Territory elections. The
4: Aboriginal Justice Agreement, a- again, a significant development um, from the Gunnar Labor government. But as we know, um, governments come and go. The likelihood of this being taken on board if there is a change in government, why is it important to get this sort of locked in stone?
0: I think it's really important, Paul, when we're looking at the future of the Northern Territory. We know our incarceration rates are very high, with Aboriginal Territorians being extremely overrepresented in our justice system, um, in our detention system, and in our um, in our jails. So that has got to change. And the body of work that's been done by the Department of Attorney General's and Justice, and I acknowledge the Attorney General Minister Files, Natasha Files, for her in this role and this space, the Aboriginal Justice Agreement is a huge body of work that's happening right across the Northern Territory to look at the relationship between Aboriginal Territorians, the over-representation in our courts and in our justice system and ways that we can look at improving the statistics by dropping the statistics. And we've had a very strong... um, Lead in that with Leanne Little, who's from this region, the Central Australian region, who's been travelling the length and width of the Northern Territory and her team, and particularly the Aboriginal consultants who've come on board to do community consultation. Not just once, not just twice, but going back to communities and making sure they're capturing the voices, the concerns, and the ideas. How can we solve the high rates of incarceration of Aboriginal Territorians? How can we do business in a different way? where we recognise there's consequences for actions, we recognise there's cultural um, values and lead of doing things in a culturally sensitive way uh, and also bringing families together. It's not something that we want people to go through a journey on their own. How can we support families who are involved in that justice system to be stronger? Many of the... uh
4: problems evolve from what happens when people get out and go back to community. So I don't think you have to be Einstein to understand that the current way and what's happened in the past of not being supportive of people either in community when they get back with programs that engage with them when they get back to community and at least give them some support when they come out of being incarcerated because it does become a way of life. Sadly we've seen a revolving door for many First Nations in in, in the Northern Territory. And one has to ask the question why they feel that it offers in in a sense more than what they're getting in their own
0: community. That's very sad. It is, absolutely. And when we're talking about when people are released um, from that system, there's social isolation, there's employment and work opportunities that just aren't there for people when they've come out, whether it's unskilled or because of records. There's housing issues. Sometimes people are coming back maybe many years later and, and family makeup is very, very different. Um, so there is a lot of health and, and mental well-being issues related to, education workforce training um and and the ways that we can support people to uh, not just to not reoffend but to have a a good quality of life. And particularly if we are talking about people returning to their remote communities, which can be isolated at the best of times, let alone when you're feeling socially or or mentally isolated in that sense. So the Aboriginal Justice Agreement is really looking at all of those factors. It's almost a a holistic outlook and not just from the individual's perspective, but from the family and the community perspective as well. And it's a large body of work and it's something, as you mentioned, we have governments coming and go during election periods, something that we want to make sure stands the test of time and will not be used as a political football. This is something bigger than the political fight. This is something that needs to be improved across the Territory.
3: That was Northern Territory Labor Minister Selena Yubo speaking with Karma's Paul Wiles. We're going to go to a quick break now and then we'll be right back with our next story.
1: G'day folks, this is Kutcher Edwards and you're listening to Our Strong Voices here on Karma Radio.
3: Celebrations were held at the weekend with the acknowledgement of the Anangu's request to close the climb at Uluru finally implemented in recognition of the cultural significance of the site. The permanent closure of the climb was announced two years ago, but traditional owners have been asking people to stop climbing it for many more years. In the uh, months in the lead up to the close at the weekend, tourists flocked to make the ascension. The wise uh, Stephen Regal files this report.
5: Tourists will no longer be able to climb Uluru after traditional owners banned the practice. It's been a long time coming with traditional owners asking people not to climb the sacred site for decades, the announcement sparked a rush of people trying to complete the climb before it ends, with some labelling this disrespectful. For more, I spoke to Jamie Lowe, CEO of the National Native Title Council, about this earlier.
1: Uh, I think, um, so, you know, I'm involved in this kind of this space on a day-to-day basis, and we see agreements uh, between traditional owner groups and whether it be state governments, federal governments, on a regular basis. Um, I think what this does, because it's captured the attention of politicians and your general kind of, you know, citizens of the country, it actually gives you the opportunity to discuss what this actually means and how uh, um, Indigenous rights, traditional rights have being upheld and being listened to. So I think around the kitchen tables, um, in the classrooms at schools, there's an opportunity now to actually start unpacking this and what this is actually kind of means, so, because you know, we do this on a regular basis, and what I'd like to kind of send a message out to the public is that, you know, the sky doesn't fall in when these agreements or these kind of changes, kind of circumstances um, get played out. You know, life goes on as, as usual in most cases.
5: So um, I, I suppose for a lot of people, like you said, that this... Um, this uh, event kind of makes these things that you're talking about a bit more practical and a a bit more concrete.
1: Yeah, well, it's a bit more practical, a bit more concrete, but uh, the the traditional owners um, of Uluru um, have been asking for people not to walk on the rock um, since they've been walking on the rock, and that's been for decades now. And so it's just you know, you've finally seeing their rights being upheld, which I think is a, a significant step in the right direction towards reconciliation uh, for the traditional owners in this country.
5: Um, now, uh, as we've seen, it's been documented in the media, there's been what's been called a rush of people uh, to climb the rock before um, it's being closed. Uh, do, do you see this as disrespectful to the wishes of the traditional owners?
1: Oh, it, it's definitely disrespectful and doesn't, and, you know, I, I don't really get that, why people would um, feel compelled to be able to do that. Um, you know, the Trisha owners have made their wishes pretty clear for some time now, so, yeah, so, you know, it's, it's, it's yeah, the simple answer is yes.
5: Uh, there was, in an ABC story I saw, um, one of the last group of climbers claimed that. They thought in their view it was still possible to both climb the rock and be respectful to uh, the traditional owners of the area. Do you think that's possible?
1: Uh, I wouldn't think so. <laughs> I think the message's been pretty clear, as I've said for some time. So I don't know how those two can coincide. Um, you know, Aboriginal people, you know, in this country, have kind of, um, you know, been quite reasonable in um, dealings. Um, so yeah, so I can't see
5: how those two can coexist. For those people, and hopefully they are my are a minority. But for those people who don't see the the reasonableness of uh, this decision, which as you've said has been a long time coming, what would you say to them?
1: I'll just encourage it and to kind of you know have a kind of bit of a deeper think about it. um, you know, Australia is a pretty big country. We need to recognise and uphold the rights of our Indigenous people, this country and our values. The value systems are very... Uh, ..are important to everyone, um, let alone um, the traditional custodians of the land. So I think it's a step towards reconciliation. Um, and, you know, I just encourage people that don't necessarily understand to kind of have to think a little bit deeper and try and, and try and get it.
5: Um. The Indigenous Affairs Minister, Federal Indigenous Affairs Minister Ken Wyatt, said that um, he made the analogy that of climbing Uluru to climbing over the War Memorial in Canberra. Do you think that's a, it's a good um, analogy?
1: I think it's a fair analogy, and there's, there's a number of kind of similar analogies that you could kind of draw upon. Um, but but I guess the fundamental is is that a, a war memorial is something that Australians, um, Australian public, will value. Um, and they say as part of their their value system, you know, people that have walked before them and recognising them. So as a public, we, we recognise that and value it. And I just encourage the Australian public to have, have that same kind of thought process when it comes to situations like the one we had at were
5: Okay. And, and besides... Um conversations um, and, and, you know, better consideration of these kinds of issues. Is there anything else that you're hoping might come out of this in terms of you know, people's consciousness or anything like that?
1: Uh, I think um, I'd, I'd encourage the teachers at schools to really think deeply and about kind of how being able to educate young people in the school about um, in regards to this. I'd encourage parents and families to be able to have the conversation around the kitchen table. Um, think deeply about, you know, upholding and, you know, understanding the, the rights and values of um, the traditional owners of the land here.
3: That was Jamie Lowe, the Chief Executive Officer of the National Native Title Council, ending that report from the YSI, Stephen Rigal. We're going to be hearing the latest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news uh, right after this.
5: Hey, hey, this is Sean E. and you're listening to Strong Voice on Karma Radio. Woo!
3: Yes, okay, so that's right. You are listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. It's time for the uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from across the country. I'm very happy to say that I'm joined in the studio by Karma's Paul Wiles. Good morning,
4: Paul. Good morning, Carl, and good morning, listeners.
3: Well, I understand uh, the first story you got for us this morning, Paul, in regards to the uh, PM and his absence at Uluru.
4: Well, yes, it uh, has been reported around the country, but um, Labor Senator Pat Dodson has blasted the Prime Minister following his absence at the celebrations and the closing of the climb. Uh, Pat Dodson says it was more than an insult. Um, Mr Dodson um, chose uh, or used the opportunity to uh, pick up uh, on the Prime Minister's uh, lack of uh, policy direction in the area of constitutional recognition. Uh, he says the Prime Minister has no policy position on constitutional recognition. By having no policy position, he he is trying to hoodwink the First Nations into thinking that he's open to a discussion about entrenching a voice in the Constitution. Um, this is something that... W- We've uh, spoken about for many years, um, the constitutional recognition process uh, at many different levels, uh, a holding tactic almost to uh, appease the First Nations. the government is seen to be doing, or doing to be seen. Who knows? But right. um, anyway, but uh, just getting um, back to Uluru, uh, Mr. Dodson says the Prime Minister of of Australia should be here at Uluru to witness the ceremony, and to celebrate with the people the significance of the event. Uh, and um, compliment the Anangu on their generosity in sharing the place. Um, Mr Dodson says you've got serious customary customary law leaders from across this part of the country and from uh, further afield. These are people who, when the Barunga statement was, was delivered to Bob Hawke, danced for the PM, um, with these people, and these are the same ceremonial bosses responsible for the dance group and the law. He said, uh, Mr Dodson says, Uluru is not some little plaything, and it's a serious part of customary practice and culture for Aboriginal people by the leader of our nation not being here to respect our culture and to finally respect the wishes of those old people who didn't want anyone climbing the rock and complimenting them on what they've done to accommodate them is more than an insult. It's an indication of the shallowness of the Prime Minister.
3: Mm. Um, obviously it was an absolutely massive event you know it was a global event we we heard heard reports from you know the united kingdoms from the u.s it it really was a very big event
4: um not in defense of the prime minister but uh, i suppose we should always uh, also mention that the uh, uh, opposition leader anthony albanese um also didn't attend, but there were mm. um, the four Labor parliamentarians, uh, Mallandry McCarthy, Linda Burney, Pat Dodson and Warren Snowden were all in attendance.
3: Mm. And just quickly, Paul, I understand you have another story for us this uh, morning Yeah,
4: just well. very quickly, Kyle, a good news story... Uh, um, a solution to a problem that happens right around the country. But over in Queensland, uh, where dozens of rainbow lorikeets have been uh, flying into large glass windows at the Queensland University, um, um, obviously with um, not very good results uh, for the rainbow lorikeets. But they've come up with uh, a unique solution. uh, A PhD student, Adam Hines, uh, thanks to the ABC, was so distressed from seeing the birds... um, uh, lying dead at the entrance to the university that he decided to take action and um, they've come up with a uh, a solution from uh, from america um, where the American bird conserva Conservancy, uh, a not-for-profit group, uh, uh, actively works with homeowners in the United States to come up with easy solutions to stop birds uh, from hitting glass windows, and uh, the solution was as simple as uh, just hanging uh, pieces of rope um, down uh, in front of the windows, which um, somehow the birds, when they're flying, uh, uh, they've how how the birds are seeing the structure impacts on what they're actually seeing. So rather than continue flying into a window, they fly around it. So, uh, uh, yeah, good news for the rainbow lorikeets. And um, if you're interested, you might want to have a look at that um, website. Uh, the um, uh, American, I've forgotten where it was now, <laughs> the, uh, where were we? The... Uh, can't even find it on here now. American Bird Conservancy, uh, ABC, um, that may have uh, the details on that site. Mm.
3: Well, on that note, Paul, thank you for joining us for the news from around the country. Thank you. We're going to go to a track now and then we'll be right back.
0: What's up? You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. <laughs>
3: Yeah, so listening to Strong Voices, we're going to head into our final story of the show. The uh, Secretary of National Aboriginal and Islander Child Care, SNAIC, is the uh, peak body for First Nations children and is heading up the push for a national uh, commissioner position. Other organisations include Family Matters as well as ACOS, but supporters also come from the two existing Indigenous Children's Commissioners in Victoria and South Australia, I recently spoke with uh, Richard Weston, the Chief Executive Officer of Snake, who begins by explaining why there needs to be a dedicated National Commissioner for First Nations children.
2: Look, there's a mul- multitude of reasons. We had the Family Matters campaign last week highlighting the representation of children in care. But um, I-, I guess a lot of our kids, a lot of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children and our young people are, are falling through through some of the cracks in the system. We need a dedicated Commissioner to focus on our kids and we need a commission to oversight accountability of services and programs and, and also to protect the rights of our children and young people. We need a dedicated voice for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children at the national level.
3: And in terms of this position then, how would you sort of see that being sort of established and, and sort of governed in a way? What, what sort of powers would you think it would need to have in order, in order to make that difference?
2: It has to have a a legislative power. It has to have a mandate. Um, We'd like to to see them reporting to Parliament, but we want them to have the ability to hold departments um, and jurisdictions to account in some way. And we want an Indigenous, a dedicated position that that is connected so that it can be connected to our community and understand the needs of our our communities. And... um, and hopefully bring about some national standards and practice across all jurisdictions and to have that accountability to um, improve outcomes for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children. Yeah, and I
3: I think definitely very important as well, you know, often we see um, certain bodies being established and, and, you know, having, unfortunately, being very reliant on on things like government funding, and as we know, as governments come and go, as do policies and programs and things like that, do you think there needs to be, I guess that that non-reliance then on, on government funding in that sense?
2: What we've been calling for through Family Matters has been a, a greater investment in an Aboriginal-controlled children's sector. So to build the capacity, build capacity on what's there. Um, certainly, a, a children's, a dedicated children's commissioner, I think, would help move us closer into that direction because what, we, what the evidence tells us is that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander organisations, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander-led solutions produce better outcomes than what we get Get for and Torres Strait and the people through mainstream efforts. So certainly over time, we you know we don't want to be we we don't want to have our kids growing up being dependent on government. We want to empower our communities and empower our families and empower our young people. You know to have control over their lives and to to carve out their own futures. But, uh, you know, we, we do need to... We have to deal with where we're at at the moment, and, and this call for a National Children's Commissioner dedicated to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island children is, is a really important step in addressing the issues um, because systems just aren't dealing with our children and, and families appropriately. So the commission is a really important step in, in getting better outcomes um, for the future.
3: Who are some of the other organisations and and commissioners who have thrown their support by this?
2: Well, we've had the two Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children's commissioners from ones in Victoria and third Justin Muhammad in Victoria and April Laurie from South Australia, and they're important supporters because their positions are showing that uh, really show what what you can achieve, what accountabilities you can achieve and and greater focus, and that's why we're calling for a national position to provide that focus. But we've had support from organisations like Family Matters, ACOS, and the the guard of the children's guardians from the other states as well. So there's there's around 80, 80 supporters, eighty three supporters all up, people that have, have put their their logos and uh, names to this this call, this proposal. And we're just hoping that that you know the government will will take notice of that and start thinking seriously about um, about you know, the the challenges that our kids and young people are facing and see this as a good step forward, a solution to, to addressing those issues.
3: And just as you sort of touched on there in terms of the state-based roles as well, uh, obviously having the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Children's Commissioner was a part of the Family Matters Report, one of the you know the action points being called from that, but along with the, the state-based ones as well. Do, do you see that as a collaborative relationship then at the national level with the other state and territories?
2: Yeah, very much so. I mean, it's the states that are delivering a lot of services to our, to our children, particularly welfare services. So we found... The states and jurisdictions to be quite responsive they they provide a lot of information into that family matters uh, report and this uh, national position this national commissioner position will provide uh, that you know that coordination and that bringing together the states and territories under under sort of the one one kind of effort one umbrella about uh, improving outcomes for our children so you know certainly getting getting the coordination right and getting that relationship between the, the Commonwealth and the States is really important when we, you know, to get these better outcomes that we're chasing.
3: You know, we often do see that, that conversation around the money being spent in, on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander affairs. When you sort of hear that and then you, you sort of see some of the statistics and how much is actually going to the mob, talk to us about that and the importance of, of making sure that all that money is being spent and actually going to the people and actually making that difference.
2: I mean, the child protection system's a great example. Is, you know, there's $6 billion a year spent on child protection. 40% of that $6 billion is spent on children in care, in the out-of-home care part of the system and it's not delivering any benefits to children. Our kids are over-represented in that system. You know, 40% of kids, nearly 40% are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids and our kids are 10 times more likely to be in care. So for the amount of money that's being spent on, on a system that isn't working, you know, that's why we need positions like a national commissioner that's dedicated to our children, accountable to parliaments that's that's appropriate, but also better able to articulate the needs and, and aspirations of our people and better connected to our communities. And that's why we want a, a, an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island, the person in the role so that we get better outcomes for our kids. And, and in getting those better outcomes, we're going to save, save taxpayers a lot of money because at the moment money is being funneled into systems that you know that don't do much to prevent or or intervene early um, for our kids and their families. And it's just leading to more costly, these costly systems that have to be maintained. And we're spending more and more into those systems. So if we don't see these circuit breaker responses from governments to, to stop that trend, then we're going to continue to get poor outcomes for our kids at a greater cost to the taxpayer. And, you know, that's not sustainable.
3: That was Richard Weston, CEO of Snake, discussing the uh, push for a national commissioner for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids. That's going to conclude Strong Voices for this uh, Monday morning. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you missed any of the stories or wanted to listen back to the program, we'll be posting up a podcast of the episode up on Karma SoundCloud and we'll be posting up those stories as well on the Karma webpage at www.karma.com.au. We'll see you the uh, same time tomorrow
1: strong voice hecha